0: We had to get that last one in there. It was an amazing thing. And on a day like this, it's good for us to uh, remember those that have paid a terrible price. Um, maybe not in personal injury, <coughs> but in terrible memories of things that they had to see that were not fun. And one of the things that makes a good soldier a good soldier is they understand what it means to be under authority. Uh, another story that didn't quite make the cut um, Mr. Miller was talking about when he was in boot camp, and they said, all of you have last name starts with them, you get over here. And he thought, what in the world is going on? They said, all of you, last name starts with them, you're going to be a machine gunner. And he said, I thought that was the end of me, because that's the first person you shoot is the guy with the machine gun. And uh, what did he do? He did, he did what he was ordered to do. He didn't say, no, that's not my style, you know. I want to do something else. He, he obeyed the uh, chain of command. And I think sometimes, especially for young people, we, we see these Rambo movies and these Terminator movies, and we think, you know, you're a one-man army. You just, you're just you a force of destruction all by yourself, army of one. And the truth is that's not how it works at all. There's a chain of command, and you have to do what you are told to do whether it agrees with you or not. Whether ultimately it leads to your death or not, there's a greater calling for which you're supposed to lay down your life. And so soldiers understand very well what it means to be under authority. And for us today as we look at scripture, we are under authority too. Jesus is our commander in chief and we are to do what he tells us to do. Jesus is not our buddy, he's not our boyfriend, he's not, you know, our grandpa in the sky, he's not Santa Claus. He's the king. And whether we like what He asks for us to do or how He asks us to live, the only right response for us as believers is to obey. And so this morning in in Matthew chapter 16, we'll see two very quick stories that Jesus has, one with His enemies and one with His friends. And it's a great contrast because it shows how these two different groups of people respond to His authority. And so the challenge for us today as good soldiers of the cross, we are to respond rightly rightly. To the authority of Jesus. And so we'll begin. Um, it's on page 693, 694 in the uh, uh, black covered Pew Bible. Uh, we'll be in Matthew 16 looking at verses 1 through 12, and we'll start with verse 1. <clears throat> in verse 1, you'll see three very quick, kind of introductory um, summaries that Matthew provides for us. It says that the Pharisees and Sadducees approached and, as a test, asked Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. Now, you'll remember from chapter 15, Jesus had left uh, Jewish territory to go to Tyre and Sidon, the land of the Phoenicians. Uh, He came back towards the area of the Sea of Galilee and uh, ministered to a predominantly Gentile crowd where he fed 4,000. What I think happens is that the religious authorities hear that Jesus has now fed 4,000 Gentiles and blessed them the same way that he fed the 5,000 Jews and blessed them, and now he's in trouble. Now the Jewish mafia has to show up. I figured there's Amish mafia, so there's got to be Jewish mafia. And so what happens? Jesus barely gets back to Jewish territory and the Pharisees and the Sadducees show up. They're like a cat ready to pounce, waiting for him, and they want to get him. Now, a lot of times we hear about the Pharisees and Sadducees. We don't normally see them kind of joined together like this because they didn't like each other. Uh, There was a tribunal, kind of a high court in um, Jewish life called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was made up of um, Pharisees and Sadducees, kind of like our house is made up of uh, Republicans and Democrats. And they liked each other less than Republicans and Democrats do. They didn't like each other. But they were both united in their opposition to Jesus. Now, it's important for us to know a little bit about who these folks are they're both layman's groups, so they would be like the Shriners or the Kiwanis Club or the Gideons or Deacons. They're a layman's group that has a couple things that kind of characterize them. The uh, Pharisees were uh, very conservative. They, were, uh, they thought that the law, capital L, law, Old Testament law, was very important, but they were also very committed to their tradition. As a matter of fact, they were so committed to their tradition that it was not law in tradition. It was law and tradition was what was important. And so uh, they uh, um, came up with all their own rules, and their status in the community was based upon how good they kept the rules. And so you could get all kinds of badges for doing the right stuff, and, you know, they didn't hide them. You know, they wore them, because they want you to know, I got more badges than you. I'm I'm better than you are. I I kept the rules better. And so two ways that the Pharisees would be characterized, they were very legalistic, And they were very self-righteous. They had their own laws, and they did it to kind of puff themselves up and prove how good they were. The Sadducees, and there's a corny joke that they they tell, the Sadducees were uh, a more liberal group, and they denied that um, the resurrection happens, that there's no life after death. And that's why they're sad, you see. And so, um, sorry. The Sadducees were an interesting group. They were liberal, theologically liberal, they were wealthy, they were political, and they were kind of the social aristocrats. So the best way to describe them, they would be like Washington, D.C. and Hollywood, California kind of combined together. They, they were those kind of people. They had influence in a, two, <clears throat> two ways that they would be described. If the Pharisees were legalistic and self-righteous, the Sadducees were liberal and self-indulgent. If you believe this world is all that it is, then eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so they were very liberal and they indulge themselves in all kinds of ways. So we see that note about Jesus' opponents kind of jumping on them, understanding who they are. Secondly, we see that they came to tempt. Uh, some translations say they came to test Jesus. What's interesting is this is the only time in Matthew that this word is used in affiliation with Jesus since Matthew chapter 4 when Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness to tempt him. And here's the thing that's kind of funny about temptations. In, in temptation or in trial or in test, you're always tempted to go up. You're never tempted to go down. Okay, you follow that? You remember when the devil came to Jesus in the wilderness? He said, if you are the son of God and you're starving because you've been fasting for 40 days in front of you, do something awesome. Turn these breads into stone. You know, if you want people to worship, you jump off the roof and let's watch the angels rescue. He was tempted to go up, not to be humble, but to make something of himself. <clears throat> Lo and behold, here, uh, 12 chapters later, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, hey, we want you to do something for us. We want you to perform a sign not a mere miracle. We want a sign, something that is like a mega miracle that really once and for all proves who you are. And so kind of in the same way that uh, uh, the devil came to Matthew, uh, uh, the devil came to Jesus in Matthew 4, in the same way that the serpent came to Adam and Eve, hey, if you eat from this, you'll be like God. You'll, do, you'll know, you'll be different. We're always tempted to go up. You're never tempted to make less of yourself. And so we see that kind of played out here. The third thing is that they requested the sign. Uh, They didn't want a mere miracle. They wanted something significant. If Elijah brought down fire from heaven, is that too much to ask of you if you're the son of God? So Jesus responds in verses 2 through 4, and in his response, we see three characteristics of these people that have opposed Jesus. Look with me at the verses. You'll see a lot of red right there because it's mostly Jesus talking. Jesus answers them, and he says, When evening comes, you say, It will be good weather because the sky is red, and in the morning... Today will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. Three things that he says. Basically, the first point is that they are blind. He says they're blind. He says you guys are so... uh, Your blindness is proved by the fact that you ask for a sign. Jesus is saying, I have demonstrated my power. I have demonstrated that the kingdom of God is upon you. I have whipped the tail of disease. I have beat destruction. I have overpowered demons. I have cast out Satan. And you know, I can even beat death. You want a sign? Jesus has been doing signs all along. And yet, they, their attitude is such that they don't receive Jesus. That they say, just show us the sign and it will be all, be, all, all be good. And Jesus says, No. No, you're blind. And the fact that you can't see the dawning of the kingdom, your request for a sign doesn't prove your sight. It, it, it proves your uh, possession of blindness. They're majoring on the minors. They're so sensitive to the weather patterns that they're insensitive to the kingdom of God. They pay more attention to the fickleness of the clouds than they do to the epic-making history of the incarnation of the Son of Man. Completely focused on what is temporal, what is earthly, and they're blind to what is eternal and what is spiritual. Essentially, what Jesus says in great politically correct fashion is, hey, you guys would be great meteorologists, but you stink as Bible scholars. That went over really well. And the truth is that there's a warning for us. It is entirely possible for you to be completely up on whatever is the latest fad, to be well indoctrinated in comprehending the things of this world, and to still be completely ignorant about the things of God. Staying up with trends may not be a sign of your godliness. It may be a sign of your worldliness. And just as Jesus says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, your self-righteousness and your self-indulgence, both of you, conservatives and liberals, are blinded to the truth of who Christ is because you're concerned with what you're concerned about. And so he says for both groups, self-righteousness and self-indulgence will blind you to who Jesus is he goes on and he says, not only are they blind, they're evil. And he, the reason Jesus says this is that their request for a sign was bogus. If Jesus would have performed the sign, would the Pharisees and Sadducees have bowed down at Jesus? Oh, now we believe? No. If Jesus would have performed the sign, their unbelief would have remained just as strong. They kind of thought that they put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. If he performed the sign, now he's tempting God because now he's making more of himself before the cross. When Jesus says, you know, you're going to walk a humble path, but you're going to be killed. And Jesus... His job is to be humble. It's not to exalt himself. God will exalt him. Jesus' job is not to exalt him. And so he if he performed the sign, he would be disobedient to God. If he didn't perform a sign, then he's now in contrast to the religious leaders. So they figure they've got him either way. And Jesus says, You're evil. He says it's an evil and an adulterous generation that requests a sign. And he says, You're not gonna get a sign. You're not gonna get a sign. I've done all the signs. And I am the sign. He says, no sign will be given it except for the sign of Jonah. And we sit there and we wonder, was Jonah like the musical artist Prince? Did he have a symbol? Did he have a logo? Did he have something? What is all this conversation about the sign of Jonah? Well, if you flip back to Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 and 40, it's interesting. There's a very similar... Uh, conversation that takes place. And Jesus answers them and says, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, the exact same thing. And now Jesus says what the sign of Jonah is. Verse 44, just as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. What is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is the fact that Jesus will be buried in the belly of the earth for three days, and he will get back up again. So he says, Pharisees, y'all are plotting my death. I know it. You won't even make eye contact with me. You're plotting to kill me. And you say, you want a sign? Well, have I got a sign for you. Strike me down, and in three days, up, uh, three days I will rise back up and build this temple. That's a heck of a sign. And Jesus said, you're not going to get anything else except for that. But the third thing that he says in verse 4 is that they are abandoned. It says, Jesus turned, And he left them and went away. Uh, The word there, katalepo, means to leave behind, to forsake, or to abandon. And here's the issue, man. The, The leaders of the Jewish nation had come to Jesus, and everything could have gone completely different. They could have repented. They could have placed their faith in him. And then the entire nation would be saved. And what happens? They come to test him. They come to prove that they don't love him. They give him a bogus opportunity to do something. And Jesus finally says, I'm done. He drops the mic and he walks away. Power over death, over destruction, over disease, over demons, over death. It's like kids that are never satisfied with what they get on Christmas. Where's the next one? I'm sorry, the last 25 were all you're going to get. We want more. And Jesus says, fine, I'm leaving. I'm done. I'm done. At least with the Jewish religious leaders. So Jesus makes his last and most important withdrawal out of Jewish territory, and he goes to the far north to a place called Caesarea Philippi that is, again, a a relatively pagan place. And you know what happens there in chapter 16 a few verses later? Peter finally gets it right, and he makes his confession that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he doesn't do it within Jewish territory. Jesus leaves them. He says they're abandoned. Their heart has become so hardened that they can't listen. So the third thing and final thing that we see is that the disciples, they really do see clearly who Jesus is, but their vision is still imperfect. I like to take a really hot shower before I shave. That's supposed to, like, get your stubble ready, I guess. Here's the problem. After I take a hot shower and I try to look in the mirror so I know what I'm doing and don't lose an ear, I can't see. So I have to go you know, and then I've got a spot like this big and I got to, you know, kind of turn to get it. You know, it happens after about 30 seconds, that little, that little porthole that I've got that I can see, it fogs back up again. So you got a wiki, 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 And the Bible says that when we talk about even the best of us, as clearly as we can see Christ, it says that we see through a mirror dimly. And so I think our temptation is to like dog the disciples when the truth is you guys probably don't see him a whole lot more clearly than the disciples do. We always got to move the fog. We've got to get rid of the stuff to see him. And so we see that the disciples really come to an important uh, crossroads at verse 5. Listen to verses 5 through 12. And to verse 4, Jesus left the Pharisees and Sadducees and went away. The disciples reached the other shore and they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus told them, watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they discussed among themselves, we didn't bring any bread. Aware of this, Jesus said, you have little faith... Why are you discussing among yourselves that you do not have bread? Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you collected or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many large baskets you collected? Why is it that you don't understand that when I told you beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it wasn't about bread? Then finally they understood that he did not tell them to beware the yeast in the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 5 kind of leaves out a really important decision that they had to make because Jesus has just had the, the breaking point with the Jewish religious leaders. And the disciples have the choice to now stick with the people that they were raised to respect, their senators and, and their representatives. And they're going on this path away from Jesus. And these good Jewish boys, when Jesus turns his back and he leaves them and he says, I'm done with them, they're abandoned. They've got to kind of scratch their head and go, which way are we going to go? Are we going to go the old way that we were used to and we're comfortable with? we're we going, we going to follow Jesus? You can almost imagine, did they have a business meeting and one of the, one of the types says, "Well, I'm going this way. Well, I'm going this way. Well we need, to, we need to vote and figure out what we're going to do. No, without hesitation, they knew that they were going to follow Christ because while we will see, they are still weighed down by temporal and earthly things. They know who Jesus is and they know that it's not worth following uh, this old way. It is worth following the new way. And so here's what happens when you continue to follow Jesus, you get extra teaching. You get extra teaching. Because when you leave Jesus, you leave, you. the only teaching you've got is the teaching that you, that you have right now. But when you continue to walk with him, you receive more light as Jesus continues to teach. So in verse 5, there's this comment about the disciples forgetting to bring bread. I don't know whose job it was, probably Peter's. He, he, he liked to put his foot in his mouth anyways. So, Bread wasn't good for him. And Jesus uses the lack of bread as a real-life teaching illustration. He says, hey, you forgot bread. Beware the yeast of the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And what I love about this is Jesus is showing what the, the nature of discipleship is. Jesus is using a, an everyday common life thing to help the disciples think about their lives in light of spiritual reality. And that's exactly what discipleship is. It's coming alongside, alongside someone and helping them to interpret life's struggles, perplexities, problems and opportunities in light of spiritual truth. Discipleship is not a program. Discipleship is a way of doing life together. And so for them, some of the truth they receive is given with tough love. This is the point kind of in boot camp where Jesus kind of gets in their face and says, what is the deal? You're worried about bread and I have just done two miracles. I fed 5,000 and then I fed 4,000 and you're all freaked out that you don't have bread. Drop and give me 20. Jesus gets in their face a little bit. And here's the thing. If you want a Jesus that only tells you what you want to hear, then that's not Jesus. It's not. There's a decision when we decide to follow Christ where we take whatever little piddly crown that we have on our head and we lay it at his feet and we acknowledge that he's the only one that deserves to wear the crown. Christ without his kingship is not Christianity. Christianity. And so you can see the disciples, you know, kind of head down, yes, sir, yes, sir, I'm sorry, we, we didn't get it. But Jesus is trying to teach them truth. And so he talks about all this thing about yeast, and they completely misunderstand it. They think, all right, if we, is he saying if we buy bread from the Pharisees and the Sadducees that it's defiled because they're so evil? Is that it? That You know, the, the bread has touched the wrong people? And, and even for them, their physical appetite became an obstacle to spiritual truth which is usually why we try to end our service at 12, because once your stomach starts grumbling, your ears turn off. And so um, for us too, you know, listen, what happens to your spirituality when you go without sleep for a little bit? It goes down the toilet. You want to see somebody's sanctification, deprive them of sleep and see how sweet they are. See how much they're like Jesus when they've been awake for 40 hours, you know? Um, That's where sanctification really kicks in. And so Jesus says, guys, this is not about physical bread. After two food miracles, It is really stupid for you to worry about bread. I am the bread of life. And so here's the thing. I think we look at the disciples and we go, boy, they're dumb. They're stupid. Here's the thing. How many of you, anybody here, given to just a little bit of worry? Some of you have a little little worry complex. Can I tell you something in love and in as much kindness as I can muster? It is as stupid for you to worry about anything as it is for the disciples to worry about bread. What has God not done for you? How has he not been faithful? We're just saying about his past faithfulness and encouraging us to to understand that God will provide. And, And the point is, we have seen God's faithfulness in the past, so why worry? You have Jesus. And the thing that the disciples did is the same thing that we do. The disciples were tempted to look at what they have and not whom they have. We don't have Can you imagine them saying, we don't have bread, when a guy that's just fed 40,000 people is sitting right there? You know, 30,000 people is right there. And so they are, their insufficiency is not the problem. Their insufficiency is the tool that God uses to show Christ's complete and total sufficiency for everything that they need. And so friends, if you believe in the Christ of the Bible, that he is sufficient for all things, why worry? And don't be stupid. Plan ahead. Look to the ant, thou sluggard. And don't quit your job and say God will provide. That's just foolishness. But why worry when you're availing of the means that God has given you? You know his goodness. Why worry? So he talks about this yeast, this leaven, and he's, he's talking about how it's small. You just need a little bit and it affects, and it affects the whole loaf. And finally, the disciples come to understand that Jesus' warning is not about the influence of yeast in bread. What he's warning about is the influence of teaching on one's way of thinking. And Jesus is referring to the doctrine, to the teaching of the Pharisees and scribes. And he uses this yeast analogy as a negative metaphor to indicate how bad teaching will corrupt, infiltrate, and ruin what is otherwise good. false doctrine is dangerous whether you are a legalist or a liberal false doctrine is dangerous in Jude 23 we're told when we rescue someone from false teaching you know how you're supposed to do it? like you're snatching a brand from the fire I don't know if you've ever had anything that's not supposed to be in a fire fall into a fire and you need to get it out you act quick you don't take your time you don't you know kind of stick your hand in there you got to do it quick And they say that's the same thing when it comes to false teaching. And so he's saying, beware a teaching and an attitude that always causes you to want something else because you're not satisfied with Jesus and his resurrection. What is God going to give you that's better than the resurrection of Christ? To know that your sins are forgiven and that you can be adopted as his uh, glorious sons. And so he says, be careful. Be careful of the teaching that you hear. And I just have to wonder for just a second, if Jesus was here today talking to his disciples, would he be concerned at all with what we hear? Would he would he like the books that you have on your bookshelf? I know you'd hide Fifty Shades of Grey when he shows up. You'd put you'd put your magazine uh, with um, skinny, skinny clad men and women away real quick when Jesus shows up. You, you get the stuff out of your refrigerator that you're not supposed to have when Jesus shows up. Would he say? Be careful, little ears, what you hear. I think he would. Because now false teaching is mainstream. It's cool. It's the fad. And he says, be very careful because teaching will affect your thinking and thinking affects your living. So two very simple questions for us this morning. And I think this helps us to understand is the disciples went through the boot camp of learning God's authority and learning that his authority extended to teaching. And we only need to put teaching in our life that magnifies Christ and helps us to live the right way. How do we understand what it means for us to be good soldiers of the cross? Here's question number one. Do you want the Jesus of the Bible? Or do you prefer a controllable Christ made in your own image? It's great to put Jesus in a box, because then when he says stuff that you don't want to listen to, you just close the box up. That's That's not a Christ that is king. That's a Christ that's a puppet. So do you want the Jesus of the Bible or do you want a controllable Christ made in your image? Secondly, if you indeed want the Christ of the Bible, are you joyfully following him by putting him first? I'm not just saying, you know, you get a bumper sticker that says God is my co-pilot. Number one, that's terrible theology. He should be your pilot. You should be the co-pilot. Now, I'm, I'm sorry if you have that bumper sticker on your car. Um... Is bad theology. He should be number one. You should be number two. But are you joyfully following him by putting him first? Are you only listening to things that are going to help you think on the things above and not the things below? Because putting Christ first is not about walking an aisle at some point in your history. It's about follow, putting one foot in front of the other and following him today. So when you go home and you interact with Darth Vader Even the way you parent pushes you more towards Christ and pushes your kids towards Christ. The way that you react when something doesn't go well pushes you towards Christ, not away from Christ. The way that everything that you do, it helps you to learn to joyfully follow your all-providing God in all circumstances. I said this earlier. Our veterans paid a terrible price for us to have a freedom that we have manipulated to... um, Elevate perversion. The best way we can honor the sacrifice not only of our veterans but of our Lord Jesus Christ is to be serious about living for Him. To be serious about following Him and not, I gotta follow Him, but for there to be a fountain of joy that wells up in your life to know that not only are you living right in comparison to someone else, but that you're following God and that you know that you have His smile upon the way that you live. That, my friends, is an awesome thing. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you. We thank you that you tell us hard truth. And uh, just as we watch the disciples get chewed out here in in the scriptures today, we watch them uh, get told, my goodness, why don't you get it yet? God, in your grace, you say the same thing to us. You help us to get better attitudes, and you tell us to man, what are you doing living this way? And uh, we need to hear that. God, even more importantly, we, we need to understand what it means to fully be under your authority. That's a bad word in our day and culture. And we need to learn what it means to live under authority. We, you say you have bought us. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price that it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And God, that doesn't just apply to Sundays. So I pray today for my brothers and sisters whatever course correction they need to make, that you will live through them. That you will grant, even right now, God, the grace of repentance and the grace of acknowledging that we're not where we need to be. God, there are even people today who may not know who you are, that you give the opportunity to be adopted into your family. Because you're that kind of God that gives. You use your authority well. And we're foolish to despise it. So God, help us to joyfully follow. Help us to want the Christ of the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.